This podcast is brought to you by Google Search. Google Search helps millions of people across the UK every day, whether they are finding ideas and inspiration, discovering brands, or looking for the best deal. Search is where your customers find what matters to them, so it's where you can find what matters to your business. To find out more, search for Think with Google UK. That's thinkwithgoogle.co.uk. This special episode of Marketing That Matters was recorded live at the Festival of Marketing earlier this month. Welcome everybody uh, to this, the opening session on this stage. Just to put it a little bit into context for you, uh, just over a week ago now we unveiled our Marketing Week Masters Awards winners. There was about 20 plus winners covering pretty much all channels and vertical sectors. And it was the job of our 30 plus senior marketers to settle on the best of the best as part of that process, our Grand Prix winner. Uh, it was all the time of vociferous and lively debate and conversation that we had, but in, in the end, pretty much everybody rounded around a single winner, and that was Robinson's revitalization. And that's the story of that, where it came from, how it developed, and how it, was, uh, how it came to life, we'll uh, get into today. That's the, the purpose of this session. It's the story of how a, a market leader and a declining market pulled off, some would say, an unlikely turnaround through a combination of new product development and cutting underperforming lines. Bravery around pricing, positioning and purpose. In other words, a classic marketing turnaround story that took in orientation, strategy and tactics, pulling on all marketing levers in the meantime. Uh, to tell the tale, I have two architects, key architects behind that campaign. I got Britvic's CMO, Matt Barwell, and the uh, UK CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, Magnus Diaba. Now, this has been recorded as a podcast. A couple of weeks ago, we launched a four-part series, Marketing That Matters, where we get under the bonnet of uh, some of the most effective campaigns of recent years. It's sponsored by Google, and I'm also pleased to welcome Kelly Guerrero, who's the agency industry manager at Google, who's also going to talk in this session about the role of search in such campaigns and what others could learn uh, from this best practice. So I'm going to start, well, at the beginning. Matt, paint the scene of where this came from, the context of Robinson's and the category at the time. Yeah, more, uh, good morning. Yeah, I think the first thing to say is Robinson's is a really big brand. You know, it's present in one in two UK households. It's been around since the early 1800s. It's got high awareness, 80% awareness. It's, it's much loved. And it's really been kind of part of the, the sort of the, the, the fabric of, of society. For a long time, many people have grown up with it and love it. Um, not many people dislike the brand. At the same time, and, and by the way, it's, it's about half of the category. So Robinson's a brand is massively important to Britvic as an organization and, and also massively important to our retail customers because it's at the heart of the category. And at the same time, it was a category that had been in decline for the best part probably of about 10 years. And it's, it's one of those sort of super tanker brands that doesn't suddenly fall off a cliff, but it, it can slowly erode. Uh, and we'd seen a number of things going backwards. Um, penetration had declined probably about 13 points over the best part of 10 years. We'd lost about 20 million in retail sales value. And that was also then starting to, to, to pull the category down. And that then becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the retailers see 
the category declining, they reduce it in space and the category reduces further and you get squeezed and then other people pile into the category and the competition gets harder and everyone fights on price. So, so we were in this kind of game of long-term decline. And, and Britvik, that was really important to us as well because it's, you know, Britvik is, a, is both a bottler and a brand owner. We're the Pepsi bottler and we're a brand owner with Robinsons, with Jay Turow, with Fruit Shoe and others. But Rob's was our biggest brand. Yeah, and when your biggest brand is going backwards, it's really difficult. The organization loses confidence. You start to get again into a cycle of pulling investment and requiring, you know, using the, the, the price lever more and more. So it, it was, we were in quite a difficult space, actually, uh, and one that was, you know, absolutely at the heart of our objectives to kind of turn around. Challenging, to say the least. But you also were being met by changing consumer attitudes and behavior around consumption of drinks, weren't you? I mean, there was, there, there was a, a, a lot of things going on. I mean, we saw, you know, an, an overall, I guess, shift to kind of health and well-being. And, and within that, a massive growth in water occasions. So, you know, consumers are shifting more to water or things that were closer to water, which was both an opportunity and a threat to us, because at one level you say, well, why aren't people using Robinsons to flavor water? But actually only about 18% of water occasions were flavored. And when you started to dig underneath that, you saw a number of reasons. Um, you know, consumers were, were not seeing the squash category in Robinsons as being healthy. It was seen at times as adding bad stuff to water rather than adding good stuff to water. We were finding as, as, a, as a brand and as a category, we were also losing older consumers. So in, in younger family households, you know, sat around the dinner table, people were using Robinsons to, to flavor water. But, but as, when you got out of that family life stage, you know, very rapidly consumers were coming out of the brand. So we saw, we saw that happening. And there, there was very little activity in the category. So there wasn't much real innovation. There was quite a lot of price pressure from own label. Um, so that was kind of, again, suppressing pricing. And there was very little in the way of premiumization. So there were, you know, there were some smaller players entering in, in a premium space, but, but, but no one of any real scale. And so what you found was you know, consumers were coming into the category, but then coming out of it. And consumers you know, weren't you know, genuinely you know, staying with the brand and seeing it as a way to add taste to water. And, and we knew that consumers found water boring as well. So it's not, not, it's not that they were delighted with their water consumption. So there was this really interesting tension. Um, and consumers were starting to see it as you know, adding bad stuff rather than good stuff to water. But that was at the heart of the opportunity for us. So the stakes were very high, I think it's probably fair to say. <laughs> so what strategic objective did you set against this context? I mean, I think, you know, at, at, at the heart of it, when we stepped back from it, we said, let's, let's, let's redefine where we compete. The squash category is worth about 500 million, but the category of kind of healthy hydration as we defined it, you know, things that were water or the opportunities to flavor water, that, that was worth about three and a half billion. So 500 million plays three and a half billion. You say, well, actually, how do, how do I re redefine where this brand operates in, in consumers' lives? And how do you find a way to have it appeal to a broader set of consumers, older consumers, in different places, in home as well as out of home? We weren't really performing out of home. And to more premium, more discerning, more adult consumers. So at the heart of the strategy, we said, OK, let, let's, let's redefine the job that we want Robinsons to play in consumers' lives. We absolutely knew 
you know, in, you know, within that, the, the, the fruit as a short decode for natural was really appealing to people. We, we, we knew that we, we'd, we'd landed on this, this expression of real fruit in every drop. Um, and every time we went into research, it, it, it came out as the most compelling thing we could say about the brand. But we weren't able, we hadn't been able to find a way to genuinely have that land in a compelling way with consumers. So we, we, we kind of knew that. We also saw a real opportunity to start to premiumize the brand because you know, we were often trapped on a one pound price point. A lot of the own label product was sold below a pound. We were locked into kind of a one pound everyday price. Really hard to break out of that. And there wasn't much of a premium tier. I mean, in a, in a lot of F FMCG categories, the premium tier represents about 25% of the category. In, in dilutes, in flavor concentrates, it was significantly less than that. So the opportunity we saw was to, to premiumize the brand and ultimately we said, okay, what we've got to do is, is, is be really brave in the way that we do that. Because again, you know, re retailers' shelves aren't ultimately flexible. There's only a certain amount of space you can, you can command. So we said, actually, we need to introduce a, a strategy that was, we said, good, better, best. We've got this core good tier. We want to premiumize with a better tier that would appeal to adults and older children and then introduce a best tier to go and compete with the beavers, the bottle greens of the world, but to really, really democratize what was actually a, quite a niche kind of space that was on quite narrow flavor formats uh, and, and, and do that. But to do that, we also understood we, we were going to have to delist about 20 million pounds worth of flavors to create the space, well, um, which, is, you know, which is not something you do lightly. I don't know what this says about uh, the judges that were judging the category, but it was this element of it that really impressed people. The fact that you, in order to reverse a decline, took a decision to, to put at risk 20 million pounds worth of revenue there. So how did you manage and, well, actually, let me ask a sub-question to that. You know, that must have been a difficult question to have with some other key stakeholders in the business as well. Uh, I, for sure. I mean, you know, though, that you, you don't take those, those decisions lightly. But, but, you know, we knew we were in a situation where, unless we did something pretty radical, we'd be in this journey of kind of long-term decline. And, and, you know, and, and that sucks the life out of an organization. Anyway, and we, we, we didn't, interestingly, we had one, we, we had another proof point for us where, you know, we, we took sugar out of our Robinsons in 2015. Um, and again, that was quite a brave thing. And in, in the short term, we actually lost quite a bit of sales value as some consumers kind of came out of, the, of those full sugar products. But interestingly, we then saw it start to come back. You know, and, and that was based on a, you know, a genuine trend of kind of health and well-being, and it was embedded in the purpose of our organization and the brand. So we'd seen where, you know, where we had made brave moves, you might suffer a little bit of short-term pain, but the longer-term benefits outweighed them. And when we looked at you know, the, the position we were, we were then in at that point on Rob's, we absolutely knew we had to create space. It, it was unrealistic to think that retailers would put another 10 SKUs or products onto their shelves. We knew we had to take some products out to create that space. We, I mean, we worked very collaboratively in, in, a, in a huge amount of detail with our commercial colleagues. So it wasn't as if this was done on a marketing whim, as it were. This was you know, genuinely thought through uh, over a period of time. Um, but it was also kind of predicated on the fact that if you could introduce some more premium ranges into your brand, 
you'd get a real halo benefit on the base. Mm. You know, and when we were trapped on a one pound price point, it was, it was really hard to start to take price. Well, that's really interesting in an incredibly price sensitive category and market. And you're being sold in retailers that are obviously under their own pressure around pricing and margins as well. So you introduce new to two new sub brands at a higher price point. Again, feels like quite a brave thing to do. Yeah, I mean, at one level, I mean, I think the delisting bit was really brave. Mm. Um, introducing two new sub-brands, I think, was, was almost like a logical conclusion. Because otherwise, you know, we were having, you know, consumers were coming out of the brand as they were growing up. That was really difficult. And we weren't able to, to premiumize. And we weren't able then to target, you know, specific day parts, specific consumers. It was all, you know, to, to kind of mass, if you like. So, so yeah, there, there was a bravery around the delist, I think. You know, I think that trying to get all of those things away at the same time is quite brave. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you know, you know, we often do things incrementally. You know, I think what we, you know, the conclusion that we came to, and also, you know, as we started to partner with Saatchi and Saatchi, it was, you know, let, let, let's pull all of those things together to create real disruption in the category. You know, as the category leader, it's kind of incumbent upon you to be the ones that are leading and pulling people into the category, otherwise no one else will. Mm. And so I think the bravery was how do you, you know, being able to execute all of those things at once, flawlessly, how do you set up your organisation to do that mm. uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't just kind of swamp people. Mm. It's one of the things that has, um, we've joined the dots between all the campaigns that we've featured uh, in Marketing That Matters podcast series is bold decisions to big problems and that's obviously what we're talking about here. Before we go into the positioning and, and the role of Saatchi and the purpose element of it, it is, I'm, I'm a bad moderator. I should have uh, laid out <laughs> the fact that you guys can ask questions at any point during the uh, session or at the end of it and I'm guessing most of you were here yesterday so you don't need me to tell you how to use Slido. And if you do, I don't have a clue, so I'll leave it to you. <laughs> um, so please do ask the questions and we'll try and get through uh, as many as we possibly can before we finish today. So I've teed it up, Magnus. So when did Saatchi and Saatchi come into the equation and when did this new positioning around the new sub-brand start to come together? Well, well there was a, a pitch process to start off with. Well. So, um, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I always think that the um, helpful piece for us was often... Um, I believe the creative process starts with asking the right questions. And uh, when Matt and the team came to us, they'd obviously done quite a lot of thinking. And that thinking led to them asking the right questions of the agency. So these questions, it was clear that the challenge was a relevance challenge for um, adults in the UK. It was really clear that what Matt and his team were looking for was, um, they wanted an idea that to create that relevance, that connection, but one that would work over time, an enduring idea. And I think that's, um, and we've, we've spoken a lot about this, is that it's very fashionable in our industry today to have, um, for people to look for big ideas that are sort of moments in time. They're like firework displays. They go off and we all look at them and go, wasn't that great? And then they just fade away. And what we were looking for was something, and what Matt asked us for was something that was enduring and would give the brand luggage and propel it into the future. So when you're doing that and you're looking for a, posi a positioning and a thought, you're looking for truth. You, if you want something that's going to last over time, it has to be born of truth. Mm. And I think Matt's touched on some of that. For the truth for, I imagine, everyone in this room, as a child, you've come across Robinson's The Brand and it evokes 
it evokes uh, memories of uh, simpler times, more innocent times, and times of goodness. And so that, when you're, that's the first truth you sort of start, you're sort of building from. Mm. Then I think the next truth is Matt and the team had come to us is it's, it's hard and it's complex, the world today, when you're trying to be um, healthier and better. Healthy and better often can be more expensive. We live in a world where it is, and in this country, it is challenged whichever part of society you're, you're in. And so you've got that complexity and the challenges in people's lives and they're looking for simpler solutions. And then we stare at it and there's some really simple facts we had, which were, I think it is, we're supposed to drink some six to eight glasses of water a day. I think 62% of us, I'm going to guess, I know I'm one of them, don't quite manage to get there. I think 65% of people uh, would say they would drink more water if it tasted better <laughs> of uh, adults and 82% of them like the taste of squash. So you sort of start, and, now we, and Matt's created a squash. I see light bulbs going <laughs> off. <laughs> Matt's created a squash that's got real fruit in every drop and no added sugar. And I think the interesting bit there is, is what's brilliant about adults is we love to overcomplicate and get to another answer and start working out how else we can be healthy when there's a really simple solution to the challenge of hydrating yourself further. And so we looked at them and that, that kind of simple logic, almost innocent logic, that adults can find and make very complex, actually it's childlike logic. Mm. And you go back to this brand that's born and has this resonance with people of, of uh, a childlike innocence, then have coming to bear with a sense that we are experts in simple goodness and bringing the wisdoms of child squash experts felt like the most natural pathway. Mm. And I think, as we all, anyone in this room will know today, there's, and we can see poignantly right now, that sometimes adults do need to be taught by children about what the right <laughs> thing to do is. So that's how we got to where we were. It's, fa it's fascinating how those things kind of came together because, yeah. because we'd, we'd done some archetype work and we'd come on this, this kind of profile of this, of Gorgo, this kind of child expert. And through the pitch process uh, and yeah. through the conversations with Magnus and the team, they'd, they'd kind of ended up in the same place. And it was, you know, they'd, they'd come at it through kind of intuition and magic and we'd kind of got to it through research and data. And it was quite interesting how those, you know, those, those yeah. things then kind of combined. It's almost the perfect marriage. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Creativity and data. I think we wouldn't have got there also without Matt and his team focusing on the water moments. Because it's when you start focusing yeah. on the water moments mm. that you get to the very simple logic. Mm. And then I assume once you've realised that logic and you've realised how simple it all is, then the creative execution, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, um, as, I mean, there's a couple of things we did. I think... It, it's interesting you've touched on uh, the intuition, the database. I think the next thing we wanted to make sure was we worked out, we focused the communication on the right moments. And so you'll see when we, looking, when we look at execution, we focused on um, our first, two launch executions. The first of those uh, is talking to adults in the workplace because 40% of water moments is in the workplace. And then the second execution focuses around, uh, as we call them, moments that matter, but it was the, it's the Monday evening uh, glass of wine after work or alcohol after work where, again, I'm not going to project for anyone in this room, but there's a lot of adults that might find they head home on a Monday evening and have some units they wish they didn't have when they don't have to have them, 
And we just thought that is a moment and we realised if we could get one glass of wine to turn into one glass of uh, fruit cordial, what the value of that might be worth. So we started to work on that. Then we moved into, and that helps us work out what our executions were. Mm. And then there's a process where I think, I'd be lying if I didn't say we're aided by the fact that we've known each other for a while, so we worked previously together, and it meant that there's a journey you go on and in the creative development journey. We definitely went through, went through qualitative research that uh, gave us insight, but told us we were in the right, going the right direction in the right place. But we definitely got to a Miller Brown link test where the results of that link test weren't what we'd hoped. <laughs> and I think in that, there is a point there where belief, faith and trust is important. I think the fact that we got there via a combination of data and intuition, and we knew what the North Star, we, we were clear on what we were aiming at together, meant that when we got those results, it was probably about, I think it was a week later, we changed things around mm. and we went with it. It is a common thread behind uh, all of these campaigns that there's a point in the process where you come up against research or some kind of data that tells you, hang on a minute, are you sure you've got this right? So, I mean, how do you make that leap to know that you've got it right and go beyond evidence to the contrary? I mean, it's, I'm fascinated in this process. I, 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 there was something that Magnus touched on earlier, which I think is at the heart of mm. that in this case, is that we, we, we wanted an idea. You know, we wanted a big idea that would endure, that would allow us to have multiple executions across multiple different media channels and disciplines. You know, and that was that kind of higher order objective. You know, and when we, you know, when we got the link test results, you know, we were, you know, we rely on data pretty heavily. You know, and we want real confidence when we're about to go and spend, you know, an awful lot of media money behind a piece of comms. But but we knew that in there, we we knew we'd landed on an amazing idea. We hadn't just found the right execution of it. Mm. Um, and that was the thing that then gave us the confidence to say, okay, the link tests may not be right against that, but we know the idea mm. is right. We know the insight is mm. right. Mm. And then it's real confidence in, you know, in the Saatchi team to then go and write brilliant work against that idea mm. that has then addressed the issues. And then, you know, back yourself. <laughs> I mean, I suppose as every, uh, as every good marketer should know, the in, if the insight's right and the strategy right and the positioning's right, then the creative will take care of itself and the media indeed will take care of itself. There's a question come up about uh, marketing channels and it was going to be a question I was going to ask as well. Uh, so how did you, when you've, you've got the creative, you've got the insight, you've got the big idea, you've done your MPD, how do you then go about how are you going to distribute this uh, media? Um, talk to me about some of the media strategy. I mean, I guess, you know, we're you know, getting, getting to your connections, planning, thinking really early, involving, you know, we, we work with M6 as our media agency, working with them together with Saatchi and the, and the brand team, working absolutely collaboratively from an early point to understand, you know, what are the moments, what are the right connection moments, what then are the right channels and disciplines to deploy our work against. I mean, you know, with, you know, with a brand like Rob's that is highly penetrated, you know, our general philosophy is you've got to build one plus cover at scale very quickly. And particularly when we were introducing two new sub ranges, so there was quite a lot to do. You know, we, wanted, we had to make sure that we built rapid awareness of fruit creations and fruit cordials. Uh, and at the same time, we wanted to create this overarching uh, idea and establish that in the marketplace. So, so TV was the obvious discipline. You know, we, we, we genuinely believe in, you know, running shorter rather than longer time lengths in order to, 
you know, build OnePlus Cover. Um, but as we were launching a new idea, you know, we, we launched with a 40-second, which again would, would probably go against some of our media principles. But you know, when again when we saw the work, it was kind of obvious that this lended itself to slightly longer time lengths. We'd originally actually we'd only intended to make one film. It was actually our CEO as we were going through the process said, "Guys, you need to make more." So we ended up making a, 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 some some work for, for cordials as well as creations. Uh, and we, we went with you know, broad TV, and then we used some social and digital channels to build some of the reasons to believe. And again, we had this child goodness expert, yeah. Rosemary, who was an amazingly gifted, talented eight-year-old, and that allowed us then, you know, that, that, that's at the heart of the idea, you had someone that could speak straight to camera or straight into your mobile phone and disrupt you and talk about what's in the product, what it stands for. So it was a very rich idea. So we then used that to deploy through social and digital channels and also use some PR to kind of build momentum around it. Mm. And, I, and I think knowing we were, we were focusing on certain moments was helpful. Yeah. Because then, for example, where we're looking at Fruit Cordial, we talked about that sort of, rather than that glass of wine is an alternative, then actually it allowed Matt to look at a program like food. <laughs> And, and think here's a, a moment to associate ourselves with. Mm. So all, I, think, I think understanding the moments where you're going to acquire your growth is genuinely helpful for being different in, mm. from a media channel perspective. And to bring Kelly back in, uh, yes, there you are, <laughs> into the conversation. Uh, obviously, you know, as we've just heard, this was, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, led by traditional media, but I know you've had a look at the role that Search played around such campaigns. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think, although obviously the TV and the creative behind it was the heart and soul of the campaign. For me, I think Search played a vital part in delivering a lot of that success that you did see. We live in a curious and connected world at the minute and people are turning to Search to find what matters. And with billions of queries happening every day, we're finding that you know brands do have a really tough job of trying to navigate through all those queries and cut through a lot of the clutter to deliver results when it matters. And I think that's what the team were able to do here. So through good SEO practices and partnerships with your suppliers, the supermarkets, you were able to anticipate the queries that were going to come through off the back of the TV campaign and all the other campaigns that went around it and make sure that you owned those results pages. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but I think the key here is that's enabling people to move from phase one of being exposed to the ad to phase two of being able to potentially purchase. Mm. And that, for me, is the kind of real intelligence behind it. It's using search as that connector between TV ad exposure and point of sale. And I think, you know, realistically, it's a huge part in the consumer journey, but it's one that can often get overlooked. But I'm, I'm pretty pleased to say that I think we've got a great example of a holistic strategy mm. from end to end. And I, I come from an agency background myself, so I know full well how hard it is to achieve that holistic strategy because, you know, the silos that exist in companies and agencies alike, they, they're just a bit of a nightmare, really. I'd be sat in, in my PPC department talking about, you know, CTR, CPA, all the usual jargon. And meanwhile, there'd be other channels, both in and out of the agency, competing for budget, talking completely different metrics. It's, mm. it's just like everyone's talking a different language. But I think if, if I think about you know, what I've learned through those experiences, that by taking a step back and thinking about that overarching business challenge in the same way that you mm. did, 
you know, whether it be focusing on growing the business or efficiency or increasing market share, search has a role to play in pretty much all of those strategies. And especially so when you consider that over 90% of in-market consumers actually use search as a tool as part of their purchase decision-making. And that's not just online. We're seeing that around 60% of in-store purchases are actually influenced by digital behavior. So it's really important that brands are present and obviously make the most of that opportunity. And was there any standout results that you saw? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the impact was pretty much instant. So we looked at Google search trends and could see that Straight off the bat, pretty much, the um, campaign had the desired impact. It got people's attention. And it seems as though those exposed to the TV ad instinctively turned to search to get additional information, which is great. We saw a massive spike in branded search queries at the very beginning. And they effectively covered not just Robinsons, but also Fruit Creations and the sub-brands. And... Off the back of that, I think that just shows how ubiquitous search has become in modern day society. Mm. People use it for for everything now, for Mm. inspiration, for um, research, for validation, and of course to do the purchasing itself, which I think is the bit we all care about most. So yeah, I think it's a vital part of of any strategy, and I think one that more people need to make, make more of. We've got some research actually coming out that gives us a bit more indication around this, but um, we can see through behavioral economics that by simply being there and being an option, you have a good chance of swaying people from their originally preferred brand. And in tests that we conducted, I think it was the average was 31% of in-market consumers actually chose a made-up brand B over their original preference of brand A. And that's a massive number, but even bigger when you take into account that the actual product and the offering, so the price, everything else, was exactly like for like. So again, it's a massive, massive opportunity to just be there and be present. And just one uh, more question for you. If there was one key takeaway from uh, this campaign that you would encourage others uh, to learn from, what would it be? I'm going to go down the route of using an analogy, I think, Um, so you might need to bear with me. But for me, search is a bit like dating. So you need to make sure that when you're on your first few dates, things need to go well, otherwise you've got no chance of anything long term. And I think the same applies to search. It's where people often turn to first, and it's a good chance that their first early interactions with a brand will happen in search. So you need to make sure that you're there, you're relevant, you're helpful, And you need to do it all at lightning speed as well, otherwise people drop off and lose interest. And I think, you know, we're in a position now where we've got the tools that help us do that really effectively, like smart bidding, responsive search ads, audiences. All of that makes our lives easier and helps us deliver that sort of holy grail of right ad, right place, right time. And that's good, but I think it's become an expectation and I think what takes you to the next level and takes you from, from effectively good strategy to great strategy is exactly what you did in terms of understanding the user's wants and needs. So going back to your examples, me as a consumer, you're probably glad to hear I like summer fruits, cordial, that's my favorite one. Um, but I don't just wake up thinking that there's a lot of decisions and thoughts that go in my mind to try and get to that point subconsciously a lot of them as well so again that that influencing factor is key 
I might choose cordial because I need to make healthy choices or you know I go for sugar free because you know again like it's about thinking about my teeth or whatever it might be so it's when you understand that context that allows you to communicate on a next level with a a consumer and really understand them and I think that's what builds a connection Mm. and hopefully that's what makes a good lasting impression that leaves them wanting more. Thank you. Uh, just to, we're almost out of time, so I'll ask um, you, Matt, to reflect, looking back now, from, with the benefit of hindsight, what kind of lessons did you learn that you might be able to take into, well, future, future <laughs> challenges, which I'm sure you'll face? Yeah, I, you know, I guess the first is surround yourself with great people. So, you know, the team that, that led this work, both internally and, you know, and at Sarches were brilliant people. So Kirsty Hunter, one of our best marketeers, was leading the work cross-functionally, cross-functionally and then kind of partnering with, uh, with Sarchin. As Magnus said, you know, uh, you know we, we, we didn't pitch this business lightly. It's not a decision that, that I take lightly at all. But, you know, having worked and known Saatchi and worked with Magnus over a period of time, I had a huge amount of faith in them. So surround yourself with great people. Be brave, you know, there are some big decisions you have to take, but, but, but standing still, particularly when you're a category leader, if you're, not, if you're not disrupting and leading the category, then no one else will, so you've got to be brave. And then, and then get the magic in the execution. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to have great tasting liquids. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. We buy stuff that tastes bloody great and that is generally good for us. You know, and having amazing packs and amazing communication, that sprinkle of magic, and that's sometimes unpredictable. So you have to take a few risks around it. But I, you know, I, it's funny, I went, back, I went back to the original pitch document that was done and, and there was a page on it that I thought was quite good. It said, what, what will make us tingle with excitement? A proper idea that allows us to make multiple executions. So I think we got that. An idea that wins effectiveness awards. Fruit Cordials was the, was the second biggest soft drinks launch. Fruit Creations, the biggest make a visible impact in the market with consumers and customers. Absolutely, we've grown the category. The category's grown 6% and we've gained six points of penetration on the back of it. We're in it together and then finally make history. I don't think we've made history yet, but that's, uh, that's the challenge for, for, for Magnus and the team for the rest of this year. Yeah. But that would be my reflections. If you can make Monday night through cordial night for everybody, yeah. then you, you know, you're doing <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, it was a worthy winner of uh, our Grand Prix. It's, it's a perfect campaign, really. Uh, massive challenge, brave decision, wonderful results. So uh, it was great to hear the inside story of it. So thank you to Kelly, thank you to Magnus, and thank you to Matt. And thank you for everybody here for turning up and listening to us. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you. You have been listening to Marketing That Matters, sponsored by Google Search and brought to you by Bauer Creative London with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Tim O'Donoghue. In the next episode, we will be discussing the 2015 campaign from Sport England, This Curl Can. You can subscribe via Marketing Week's page on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud, where you can check out our other podcasts, Marketing Week Meets and Marketing Week Explores. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by Google Search. Google Search helps millions of people across the UK every day, whether they are finding ideas and inspiration, discovering brands, or looking for the best deal. Search is where your customers find what matters to them, so it's where you can find what matters to your business. To find out more, 
Search for Think With Google UK. That's thinkwithgoogle.co.uk.